Revelation chapter 5 says this, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Father, again, we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ, as this passage says, to be slain on our behalf. That you, in the eternal plan of redemption, determined it would be your Son that came to be a sacrifice for us. Thank you, Lord, that you came not only for the Jew, but for the Gentile. Thank you, by your, thank you for your mighty Holy Spirit who has brought us to life to believe and now works in our hearts so that we might be able to be transformed to be like you. And we ask that we might be worthy of you, that we might walk in a worthy manner, as Ephesians says. That even as we come before this table, we might deal with our sin, so we might come in a worthy manner. Uh, Please give us wisdom in this area, as the psalmist said, search us, because you know us. And please reveal to us things that need to be taken care of by us. I just ask that you would uh, grant us repentance, willingness to forgive to confess, to repent, and to go in a different direction. Uh, So again, we ask that you would prepare our hearts for the table as we study the book of Nehemiah. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to turn your Bible, see uh, Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 14... To the end of the chapter. Question. How do you handle adversity? In other words, how do you handle hardship? Or trials? Or the difficult times that have come into your life? Or loss? How do you handle being deprived of something? Maybe it's wealth, maybe it's health, maybe it's um, finances, maybe it's a relationship. How do you handle discouragement? Do you turn on God during discouragement? Maybe it's a discouraging time at work. Maybe it's instead of being promoted, you are demoted. (laughs) Sometimes we can get disillusioned. You know, you have all those different hardships. By the way, thankfully, uh, through the book of Job, through the book of James, we realize that God has a purpose through hard times, right? Amen to that. Only because God is sovereign and he is good can we know that even during our hard times, he's using it for something. But even a, a harder test than adversity is sometimes and many times and often prosperity. Prosperity is a test as well. And you might say, really? (laughs) Bring it on. Question is, how do you handle prosperity? How do you handle advancement? How do you handle it when everything is going well? 
Thomas Carlyle, the uh, Scottish, <clears throat> he was a historian, once declared this, quote, Adversity is hard on a man, but for one man who can stand prosperity, there are a hundred that will stand adversity. In other words, stand up against it. What is he talking about? It's, it's easy to, to stand in, in prosperity. It's not easy to stand in prosperity and still trust God. Now, that's where many times we depend on ourselves. As another man said, adversity has slain its thousands and prosperity its tens of thousands. Many of us are prosperous. In fact, compared to the world, we all are. Actually, compared to the world, we're all rich. And sometimes because we are rich, because we are wealthy, because things are going well, we forget God, right? And we're going to look at two different groups of people. Well, a group, and then we're going to look at Nehemiah. But we're going to look and see, did, did, did the nobles lose their focus on God? We're going to see yes, but did Nehemiah? And we're going to find no, he was faithful. See, the psalmist says this, That God puts down one and exalts another. And we forget that. That everything we have is from God. God owns it all, Psalms 24 says. I like how Proverbs 30, verse 7. There, This is real wisdom. He says, Proverbs 30, verse 7. You might want to write this down because this is... Because, see, the guy knew... (laughs) That prosperity could lead him astray. He says this, Two things I request of you. Deprive me not before I die. The first one, verse 8, Remove falsehood and lies, which is speech, far from me. In other words, help me to keep my integrity. Part of integrity is the fact of living a lie. But he's saying, let me live with integrity. To remove falsehoods and lies. But then he says this, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Now get that. Neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me. Don't let me get greedy. Verse 9, Lest I be full and deny you. See, prosperity, easy to deny God. And say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and I steal and profane the name of my God. Now, that's good wisdom right there. Adversity is hard. Prosperity is also hard. And we have to see that. And you have to ask yourself, am I truly trusting God? Am I truly trusting in His... Or am I, have I been tempted to trust myself? To not be generous? To hoard? To save up for the rainy day, even if it starts to pour? And, and we never really trust God. We... Use people instead of ministering to them of the stuff that we have. Now again, we're going to look at two different people. The first one is the confrontation of the greedy. We actually looked at that last week, but I think it's worth a quick review. Again, if you're in Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, we see the exploitation of the poor. Basically this, the poor because of taxes, because of famine, because of... um, just the mortgages were having to literally mortgage their land uh, at a, and, and then have to, I mean, as far as uh, borrow money from the nobles, from the rich, from the officials, 
at absorbent rates between 12 and 50%, depending on the person. And that's just plain old ex- exploitation of the poor. But in verse uh, 6, the cry, uh, Nehemiah heard the cry, and it says he got very angry. Very angry. That's, that's a good anger right there. That's righteous anger. And he confronts them in the second part of verse 7. And this is the word consideration. Now, if you've been in ABF the last couple of weeks, you know that this is what we've been studying about. It just happened to be that uh, that entire process we saw in Nehemiah. So I thought, well, well, we'll use that as the outline. So you have consideration. In other words, Nehemiah is going to tell the nobles some things that they need to consider. And you find that second part of verse 7. Uh, I brought charges, plural, against the nobles and the officials. In other words, the nobles and the rulers. What I, I, what I find with uh, Nehemiah is he is courageous. He's not partial. He's not partial to them. It'd be very easy, you know, he's trying to get a wall done. He's trying to get the whole, you know, it'd be easy to say, well, you know, we're not going to deal with this sin right now. He stops every, hey, whoa, wait a second here. Before God, you need to hear this. He's not partial to, have you ever been partial to a group of people? You see somebody, maybe it's a family member, and you know they're doing wrong, and you're not willing to go to them because what what they think. They're going to cause all kinds of disruption. He's not partial. But again, he, he goes to them. And again, the question is, is, what does God want the person to see? And again, he wants, Nehemiah wanted, and God wanted the nobles and the officials to see that lending money for usury, at, at usury prices, in other words, at interest, was wrong. And we saw this in Exodus 22, verse 25. It says specifically, if you lend money to any of my people that are poor, you shall not exact interest from him. So they were directly violating God's word. But look at verse 9. He says, the thing that you are doing is not good. That's their actions. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? And if you want to underline that, we're going to see that fear of God a second time here in a minute. A few minutes. See, he was saying this, you're not doing right because you're not fearing God. The opposite is also going to be true. Nehemiah did right because he did fear God. And when we come to this table, the question today is, are you walking with Jesus Christ because you do fear him? So again, you're not doing right. You need to fear God. You know, let me just throw some application along the way. When you confront another, show them why they, they are wrong biblically. I think this, this just screams out at the, in the passage. In other words, you've got to show them why they're wrong. But I think the second thing is this. It is your job to present truth, not to convict them. Um, I mentioned this downstairs, or it was being mentioned you know, we're not the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and sometimes in my immaturity, I used to think when I needed to confront someone, you know, speak the truth in love, I had to go like this. And you need to hear this. And by the way, I'm going to stand right here until you hear this. And if you don't repent right now, I'll still stand here. You know what? You just got to throw, throw the truth out. I mean that in the right sense. You have to present the truth and know that it's the, it's the Holy Spirit that's going to convict. So if you have to tell someone, speak the truth in love, you have to show someone, you know, truth, you don't have to 
feel like, you know, until they change, I, ha- no, I, I need to still be part of the process, but it's, it's the grace of God in your life if you were willing to repent. So I just need to present truth. Verse 11, return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses. This very day. So when presenting truth, show them they're wrong, but also what they need to do. He said, return. Um, When is a thief no longer a thief? When he stops stealing, right? Nah. No, when he's willing to give out of a generous heart. Or Ephesians, Ephesians 4, the second part of that. Uh, when is a liar no longer a liar? When he is willing to speak the truth. So what I'm getting at is this. He is, he is leading them down the path of the put off, put on. Return. This is part of the process of having them change. Yeah, you've got to confess, but you've got you to turn from your way. Stop doing that. Return this very day. By the way, that very day also gives you another principle. Encourage a person to deal with their sin now. Even though I'm saying I'm not the Spirit of God, I still need to encourage them at this very time. <clears throat> Don't try to take the slow road, the long path, as far as repentance. If you see you're wrong, change as of today. And so that's what he does. This very day. So that's the consideration. He throws it a lot right there. But look at the second part of verse, uh, in verse 12. Confession. Confession is what does God want the person to admit and confess? And they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. Right there. They're speaking it, but they're saying, listen, we will do that. We were wrong. We've repented. And our repentance is going to be shown by what we do. So that's confession. If you have, uh, well, hopefully you have your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. If you turn there real quick, it, quickly, 2 Timothy 2, 24. Just keep your hand in Nehemiah, we'll be right back. But this is a real good passage on how we as servants should respond to those in error. 2 Timothy 2, 24, and a servant, the word is doulos, slave. Slave of whom? Slave of the Lord. And a servant of the Lord, a slave of the Lord, must not quarrel. Now think about this in the context of speaking to someone who has erred. You don't want to quarrel with them. By the way, your argument is not with me. That's how you have to think about it. If you need to help someone see truth, you want to be their eyes, a seer for them, as it were. No, 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 I'm just the the messenger, (laughs) Sometimes we get into a quarrel. No, no, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be what? What's the next word? Oh, don't you love that word? Gentle, mild, to all, able to teach. That's what you're really doing. You're going to present truth. Why? You're trying to teach them. You're going to be what? Patient. It's a different word than your normal patient. This one has to do with patience with evil. Patience with evil because, see, you're dealing with a person that's erring, and sometimes you can get very impatient with their evil. I'm not saying you accept their evil, but you have to be patient with them. In other words, your heart breaks. You're in, you're in the trap. You're, you, you've been trapped by Satan. You're, you're in the ditch. I'm just trying to help you get out of the ditch. I know you're, you're angry with me because I'm telling you you're in the ditch, but no, no, you're in the ditch. No, no, you're in the ditch. You don't think you're in the ditch? No, no, you are in the ditch. 
fact, the hole is getting, in fact, here, you don't, no, you don't want me to throw you a shovel, do you? I'm not going to throw you a shovel. That's how you feel sometimes. But look at this, in humility, humility is uh, meekness, power under control, correcting those, that same word correcting is you find in Hebrews 12, chastening those who are in opposition. Boy, that's a really powerful passage. If you ever have to go to someone and, and speak truth to them, I would encourage you to take that passage out and say, okay, how do I do it? Because again, I want to be patient. I want to be humble. I don't want to argue. I want to be gentle. I want to teach those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will what? Grant them repentance. If they turn from their sinfulness, who has granted them repentance? The grace of God, right? The grace of God. So that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses because they weren't able to, they didn't realize they were in the hole and escape from the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him to do his will. So that's part of the consideration that leads a person to the confession. So you want to turn back to Nehemiah. I just wanted to show, because that is such a great passage on you know, getting our minds able to wrap around what our responsibility are. And then number three, commitment. The person needs to go in new ways of living that God is calling them to do. And they say this, we will restore. See, that's the commitment. We will and then finally, the change. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord, and, and the people did as they had promised. That's the change. How should these new commitments be applied to living, daily living? Now, again, I'll throw up this, uh, uh, the chart, if you happen to have that. Uh, just to kind of put it, just so you can, you know, snapshot and say, okay, this is how it looks. So you have consideration, you have confession. That's the put off. That's the change of heart. Do you notice where the change of heart is? After they consider it, the heart is changed, therefore they're willing to confess. But then, you, see, some people just want to stay with the confession, but now there's a commitment to change. That's the put on. That's a new behavior. Or as I put in your outline, change has not taken place until what? Change has taken place. And that's true repentance right there. That is... That shows what a person needs to do. It's not just a matter of, oh, I did wrong, please forgive me. It's, I did wrong, please forgive me. And now I am repenting, going in a different direction. And thankfully, with these people, they, they, uh, they did it. Man, they did it. Nehemiah confronted them, consider this, and they, they grabbed it. And we say, praise the Lord. Now, in verse 14... To 19, this is the, the last part for the chapter that we're, and it's going to prepare us for the table. He's going to now give you a, a little bit of his own story, okay? Now, remember, uh, when it comes to the book of Nehemiah, chapters 1 through 12 are about his first governorship. He comes back a few years later to a second governorship, okay? He governs Israel twice. And the first time he does it for 12 years. Now, what he does is, you know, at the end of his rule, <clears throat> he tells, ne- I believe it's Ezra that actually penned Nehemiah. So he actually gives the story, and what he does is he takes, you know, he, he, he does his 12 years of rule, he goes to, back to uh, Susa, and then he comes and, and rules one more time. That's chapter 13 of Nehemiah. That's the book. 
But what he does here is, he's telling us the story of the first year, how he confronted the nobles. Now what he does is he jumps all the way and he says, but let me, let me tell you about my life. Let me tell you about my life. Let me tell you the, the consistency that I had in my own life. See, the question is this. Well, Nehemiah, do you even have the right to confront the nobles? So he puts this story in that really covers his entire time that he's ruling Israel. And so he says this. Now there, excuse me, verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor, 445, in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year, this is the first 12 years, of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. He's going to show his consistency, his, let's say this, his integrity. He's going to be explaining to us in these few verses that he was unselfish. See, he, he just confronted a group of people that were very selfish, using the poor, exploiting the poor. Now he's going to give us his story. And he's going to show that he had authenticity. By the way, authenticity, Chuck Swindoll says, is this, that you don't change based on the audience. (laughs) I like that. You don't change based on the audience. You're authentic, which is another word to say of of integrity. Do you have integrity? Do you change because of the audience? Well, this is how sometimes it happens on Sunday morning. Sunday morning at home is a disaster. Sunday morning uh, in the car is a disaster. You know, and uh, arguments and uh, hostilities. But then when you walk through those double doors, all of a sudden, you are sanctified. <laughs> you know what? There's a lot of integrity issues. What you are in by yourself when no one else is watching is what you are. So what are you? It's not about being here. It's about what are you when you're by yourself? What are you when you're trying to discipline your children? What are you when you're seeking to love your spouse? How, do you? Is there integrity in your life? Again, in, integrity is this, quote, a quality or a state of being, of being complete or undivided. That's what it means. That's what Webster says. A quality or state of being complete or undivided. It's not divided. In other words, there's, there's a completeness, an honesty, a truthfulness, a reliability. You are inwardly what you appear to be outwardly. Are you, are you outwardly what you, I mean, are you inwardly what you appear to be outwardly? I, I trust, by the way, if you aren't, it's very hard to live, isn't it? Oh, that's where a lot of guilt comes in. When you play a double life, it's very difficult because if you're a true believer, God's conviction is on you and you feel very guilty. By the way, we're all guilty. (laughs) We're all hypocrites to a degree. But some are living in blatant sin, unwilling to change and repent, and yet trying to live and show the Christian life. That's that's a very hard life to live. So are you inwardly what you appear to be outwardly? Our uh, president, President Eisenhower, said this of leadership as it relates to integrity. He said, quote, In order for a man to be a leader, he must have followers, and to have followers, he must have their confidence. Hence, the supreme quality for a leader is unquestionable integrity. 
Without it, no real success is possible. No matter whether it is on a work crew or a football field, in the army or in the office, and I will say especially in the church, if a man's associates find him guilty of phoniness, if they find that he lacks forthright integrity, he will fail. His teachings and actions must square with each other. The first great need, therefore, is integrity and high purpose, end quote. Yeah, integrity, it's, it's absolutely critical. And I believe this is why Nehemiah gives us a glimpse of his first 12 years. And he says, okay, I, I had to confront the nobles. They were using people, but let me give you a glimpse of me. Not to exalt me, but just so that you know I am a man of integrity. So again, he gives the overview in verse 14. The 12 years. The fact that he sacrificed. That's what you're going to find out here. That it was normally, that what was normally due him, see he was a governor, he, he had certain rights in, that, that he could pull from people, the, the food allowance, that's the second part of verse 14, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. He says, you know what, whereas the nobles were selfish, I was selfless. It was due me, I could have required it of them, but I chose to allow them to keep what they... Because they were in such hardship. I think of the Apostle Paul in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 8. I should have pegged it. I've got a new Bible that the pages stick together. <laughs> okay, verse 8. It says, Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. That's what the Apostle Paul said to the Thessalonica church. Nehemiah is saying the same thing. I, I, didn't, I didn't require the governor's allowance because I was selfless. Now look at uh, verse 15. Which meant he stood against the trend of the times. The former governors who were before me, they laid heavy taxes on the people. And that, the, the implication there is they overtaxed. Let's face it, if you're the ruler and the king of Persia is hundreds of miles away, you can even start skimming off the top more than you need. So heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily rations, even as Swindoll says, maybe even to a point of illegal. <laughs> took more, 40 shekels of silver. And even their servants lorded it over the people. I mean... When it's not just the king, when it's not just the governor, but even the governor's servants are able to take advantage of the people, you know there's a real problem there, right? He says, "No, I." Even though that was happening, he's, but look at this, verse 15, and that's verse 15 is the clincher. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I didn't do all that. I didn't act unrighteously because of the fear of God. My eyes were set on Him. Remember what I said. In verse 9, he, he tells the unrighteous, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? And now he brings that up again. He says, but you know what? They, though they didn't walk in the fear of God at first, I walked in the fear of God. Let me say a few things about the heart, the heart of the matter. Just, and uh, I've been reading this, well, I've been using this for a number of, actually, months, but uh, it's a book of, uh, called Motives. I don't think we even have any more. If we do, if we don't, we need to order some more of these. But uh, the guy, Ed Welsh, talks about the treasures of the heart. 
You know, we all have treasures in our heart. Let me give you three different points. Actually, I gave you two on your outline, but you might want to write this third one down. Everyone lives for some type of treasure. Everyone lives for a treasure. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust and uh, destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And though he's talking specifically about money there, mammon, we, we live for a lot of different treasures. The treasures of our heart is what drives us. It's why you do what you do. They come, become very, very important. And they actually determine your agenda, which means it determines your thoughts and your desires and your choices and your words and your actions. And you say, what are you talking about, treasures? Well, the point is this. Because the nobles had a different treasure than the fear of God, they were willing to break God's law to gain wealth. And you say, well, what are some of the treasures that are out there? What are some of the the motives? Well, think of it this way. Why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? Or better question, or another question, why do I, why do I really, what do I really want? What do I want? And if I don't have it, this, whatever it might be, I get miserable. <laughs> See, the point is, is sometimes we think, well, you know, God's just interested in our actions. Well, no, he's actually interested in who are you worshiping. That's the fear of God. And what, what Nehemiah is saying, you know, my actions are right because I'm worshiping the true God. I have a true fear of God. Example, these are some of the motives of the heart. These are some of the things that we treasure. We treasure pleasure. We treasure freedom and autonomy. Be able to do my own thing. No one telling me what to do, including God. We treasure love and intimacy, and if they don't provide it, I'll find someone who can. We, find, uh, we treasure significance. We treasure reputation. That's why I go to school. That's why I have my job. That's why I do my lawn twice a week. <laughs> reputation. We want respect and admiration. We want control, power. Sometimes our treasure is peace. Just want peace. By the way, sometimes a peace at the cost. I don't want to tell anybody that they're wrong. I just want peace. I want happiness. I want comfort. I want security. I want meaning. I want success. And that's just a short list. The point is, is this. We all treasure something. In fact, actually, we treasure a lot of things. And because they're there... They control us. In fact, the second part is this. The thing that you treasure will control your heart. Now, the heart is the true self. In fact, Jesus said this, for where your treasure is, wherever your treasure is, there your what? Heart will be also. So actually, it's not the heart leading. It's the treasure that leads. The the treasure leads and the heart follows. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The true self. So I treasure something, and now, because I do that, now my heart, you know, like this. Precious. Precious. 
precious. I love that part of the movie, by the way. I really do. I know you're saying, oh, no, no. That is really so how we are when it comes to sin. It really is. And we don't think that way, but we really do. It's the, the heart is the, is the, the part of us, the, the real us, the real me, okay? I don't have time to get into all, but the point is, is this, you have a treasure and your heart's following. Now the third thing is this, what controls your heart will control your behavior. Do you see what I'm saying? There's a treasure, but if it's not God, it's something else. By the way, we will get God's idols that will meet our need for that treasure. And therefore, this is, what we, this is what we highly esteem. Our heart is connected to it. And from there, because we need that, our behavior will follow. So the treasure through the heart produces the behavior, not the other way around. And, and again, you can see that in a different ways as far as how it's played out. Uh, example, we choose, as, as this man said, uh, well said, we choose idols in part because we believe they can give us what we want, what we desire, our treasure. So a, the god or the idol of drugs brings fearlessness. Uh, the god of sex promises what? Pleasure. But this is the one we're dealing with today. The god of wealth Holds out power, influence, peace, security, being respected, being admired, right? Now I say all that because, again, the way it really plays out is, once I get saved, my heart is changed, but it's not changed completely. I still have this, uh, this battle going on. Am I going to live for the kingdom of self or the kingdom of God? Am I going to serve myself or am I going to truly serve God? And what we see here with, the, with Nehemiah bringing it back because of time's sake is in verse 15, he says, no, I did what was right because of the fear of God. He was serving God. He was serving God's kingdom. He was sacrificial. What it means is this. What he was treasuring wasn't something that served himself. What he treasured was what, what was important to God. And as we go before the table, I just want you to, again, in fact, we're going to go come back to this. In chapter 7, we see a revival, and I'm going to re-hit this and develop it more. But I want you to think to yourself is, what do you treasure? A lot of people, a lot of people work their entire life because you know what really is at the forefront of their heart? Security. I want security. I'll sacrifice my family. I will sacrifice my life to have enough money to have security. You know what's sad about that? You can't have it like that. It can be taken from you that quick, right? See, we all serve something or someone. And here we find that Nehemiah served God. The fear of God. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. The fear of God, by the way, that same word is used also like this, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of instruction. In the fear of the Lord, there is great confidence. That's a good one. When you're walking in God's fear, reverential all of Him, loving Him, doing His purposes, there is great confidence. 
I don't find my security in the world. I don't find my security in the greenback. I find it in God. So the fear of the Lord is a synonymous term with this, the fear of God. It happens just in uh, Old Testament, uh, in Proverbs, it's like 10 or 12 times, uh, 25 times in the Old Testament. The fear of God or the fear of the Lord. Now again, when we have the fear of, of the Lord... Well, let me back up. I, I put down a few questions. Again, they, they were found in these, this book. I think every one of you should have one of these books. It's really a, it really is an eye-opener. It's like, wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's but he says, you know, if you want to know what's controlling your heart, ask these questions. Uh, whom do you love? You know, this is taken on 1 John 2.15. The world or Jesus? Whom do you really love? Whom do you trust? People are the true God. Uh, whom will you serve? Money or the Father? Uh, whom do you obey? Like out of 1 John 3.10. The devil or God? For whose glory do you live? Your own or the Lord's? And where is your treasure? Matthew 6.21. In the world or in Christ? See, those are some really good, because now they start opening up. Okay, yeah, we all have idols in our life. There's no question about that. But again, this starts to break open and say, wait a second, I've got to look beyond just my actions to what are my motivations? What are my treasures? You know, what am I living for? Pleasure, freedom, love, significance? What is it? Well, let me just ask you some final questions, helping you to get into deeper motivations of the heart, only because my wife graciously wrote them down, so you might as well look at them. What do you love? Now, this will start pointing directly to the idol. What do you love? What do you hate? What do you hope for? What do you want? What do you crave? What do you fear? Oh, this is a good one. What do you worry about? Usually that points right to some. I worry about losing because what will people think? (laughs) What do you feel you need? Where do you find refuge, comfort, pleasure, security? Oh, this is a great one. What defines success or failure for you? I define success as, fill in. You'll start seeing what you really serve. What does money mean to you? Now, and again, notice how money can temporarily satisfy some of these desires. Money can do something for you, but it won't be permanent. And what do you see as your rights? In other words, when you don't have that particular thing, you get angry. Usually when you get angry about something, I mean, unrighteously angry, you really say, oh, that's what your idol is. You're thinking that's going to produce it for you. You're thinking that's going to provide the pleasure. You think that thing is going to provide your hope, your security. Again, we went through that quick, but I'm doing it because I want you to think, you know, as we come before the table, it's not just your actions. What do you treasure? Because as we come before Christ, he says, I, I want you to treasure me. I want you to find your hope in me. I want you to find your security in me. I want you to find your peace in me. I want you to find your pleasure. I want you to find your, um, oh, what's the word where you, 
pr- prominence. <laughs> That's really, we're coming before him and saying, Lord, you are my all. Because we know that this world is going to pass away. And by the way, when it does pass away, you don't remember. Nobody's going to remember that you were whatever and whatever in this earth. Do you understand that? We don't. That's not important. At that point in the game, it's not important. I, that is so refreshing to me. <laughs> Isn't it? I just love eternity. I love thinking about eternity. Because all these little struggles and things I struggle with no, is not even remembered. It's, I, was I faithful to God? Did I love him? Okay, let's look at the fear of God. What, the, what did the fear of God do for Nehemiah? And I only have about 10 minutes, but we'll wrap this up. First of all, it created an obedient heart. Now, you have to go back to verse 9 to see it, but he says, the thing that you are doing, talking about the nobles, ought you not to walk in the fear of God, i.e., if you walk in the fear of God, you'll have an obedient heart. That is action right there. Because the fear of the Lord, quote, is, descri- is, is a foundation of right conduct. But now, let's look at some other things. Verse 16, the fear of God formed a singularly focused heart because after he said he was walking in the fear of god he said i also persevered or the word is continued in the work of the wall you know what the fear of god does for you it gets you it gets you focused if you don't have the fear of god and god saying lord uh, john i want you to do this i found myself when i was younger in the faith just like bouncing trying to find my place But the more you have the fear of God, the less the fear of man. And so I'm not worried about pleasing you, though I love you. I want to please God. And that's how it will be in your own life. In other words, there's a lot of other things that Nehemiah could have done, but he got back to building the wall, what was the priority at the moment that God wanted him to do. Fear of the Lord keeps you focused. Singularly focused. How about the third one? The fear of God created a contented heart. Second part of verse 16, And we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. See, he's talking about when these people were in great need. It could have been at that point that he could have become opportunistic. (laughs) You know, oh, you're really in great need. Yeah, I'll give you the money there again for high usury. No, no, no. He says, and we acquired no land. In other words, we were servants to the people, even the poor people. They say in a crisis, cash is king. I.e., if you have cash in a crisis, you can make a lot of great deals. But he said, you know what? I didn't make one deal. Because again, I have a contented heart. He had a contented heart. How about number four? The fear of God established a fearless heart. Moreover, there were at my table, verse 17, 150 men, Jews, and officials beside those who came to us from the nations that were around us. They figure probably between five and 600 people. If you add up all the people, the men, the women, the children, see, there would have been, you know, it's not like you're just going to feed men. <laughs> you got to feed their, so five, six, seven hundred people. But I did like what um, one commentator said. He said, Nehemiah lived with personal austerity. Quote, those who, those who during the 12 years as governor came to dine with him must have been appalled at the meager fare. End quote. What was he getting at? Well, even though 
he, well, he tells in verse 18 what his expenses were. My expenses for each day was an ox, six choice sheep, birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. But that was only every 10 days. Okay? Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. But even with all that, that sounds like a lot, but not when you start talking about three, four, five, six hundred people. It was a meager fare. In other words, he was fearless. What do you mean fearless? In other words, Nehemiah had his eyes set on God. And even though he set out enough food to feed them, it wasn't lavish. It wasn't like, you know, Nebuchadnezzar. It certainly wasn't like, you know, the, the kings of Persia. No, this was necessity. We're in building the wall. I'm not trying to impress you. I'm just trying to get you strong so you can help me finish the wall. So when you have the fear of God, you are fearless. You don't care what other people think. He, he provided food, but as one man said, he lived frugally. Gave him enough to survive, but he wasn't trying to, trying to impress anybody. And when you, fear, when you live in the fear of God, you don't, you're fearless. You don't have to impress anyone. How about number five? The fear of God produced a generous heart. That word generous, I mean large, lavish. Even though it was food and it wasn't lavish, it was all out of his pocket. Because it says, verse 18, now, when, now what was prepared at my expense. Second part of verse 18, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor. He was generous. And his generosity was grounded in the fear of God, in the character, in God's name. In other words, he knew that he served a loving God, a kind God, a good God, a faithful and gracious and generous God, and therefore he was generous with what God had given to him. He had seen God's grace magnificently given to him, and he just wanted to give it back. Let me give you one other thought about giving. It should be joyful. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 says, Let each one of you give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly. Uh, the plate is being passed. i got to give. Well, I guess we don't pass a plate. Did you notice we don't pass a plate? Some of you have probably been here for a long time. You don't pass a plate. No, because we don't want you to give it grudgingly. But I hope you don't go in the back there, you know, i got to give this, you know. Uh, checks. All right, I got to do or else God's not going to bless me. Put the check in. Not grudgingly. Purpose in your heart, not grudgingly. For God loves what? A cheerful. By the way, it says, not of necessity either. Like I said, if I don't give, he's not going to give to me. I'll be poor. I'll be dirt poor. I'll end up in the hospital and die at an early age. All because I didn't give. No, no, no. New Testament is not a tithe. It's grace giving. But you should do it with cheerfully. You know what the word cheer? <laughs> it's the word hilarious. In other words, there's a lot of joy in your heart. God loves a cheerful giver. Swindoll said this sometimes we should give even to, the, even to scaring ourselves. In other words, you're giving, knowing, Lord, you're telling me to do it from a generous, giving heart, but I'm going to have to say no to a lot of those other things. Oh, actually, you're going to have to say no to some of your idols and your treasures. We don't give a lot of times because we have too many treasures that are not God's. 
right? Not given by God. And then finally, the fear of the Lord, fear of God, solidified a hopeful, a hopeful heart. Look at the last verse, verse 19. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. That's hopeful. In other words, I'm going to give it away, but just like Corinthians says, you, <clears throat> you plant, you sow, and then you reap. And Lord, I know that you, though I shovel it out, you have a bigger shovel. And he prays to God and he says, remember for my God, oh my God. That's a hopeful heart. Lord, you know what I'm doing for this people. You know my sacrifice. You know that I could have required at their hands and I said no. You know that then I could have given back and looked really good. See, if, I, if, he, had give, if he had taken from the people the governor's allowance, think about that. How great of a lavish spread he could have done for the 150 men and everyone else. Wow, look at this guy. Even though they're suffering, look at how the, you know, the banquet he puts on. No, Lord, my eyes were kept on you. I said to the people, you keep your money, you're overburdened as it is. I'll provide, but it won't be. And they may look at me and say, boy, that's not very, that's not very lavish. It doesn't matter. I don't have fear of man, I have fear of God. And Lord, remember me. Just remember me. By the way, he uses that same terminology six other times in that book. That's the first of the remember me's. It says two times in chapter 6, remember my enemy, deal with them. And three times in chapter 13, remember me, remember me. Each time you say that, it's, it's hopeful. Lord, I am going to serve you. I'm going to serve you with my whole heart. I'm going to keep my eyes focused on you. You're my God. I'm going to deal with idols in my heart. I'm going to deal with the treasures in my heart. I'm going to deal with the things I think can bring me peace and joy, but I know only you can. And then what do we say as Christians? Remember me. Because I know this. There's a judgment day coming, isn't there? There's a beam of day coming. There's a day when he will reward the faithful. Isn't that true? And so we're committing and saying, Lord, we're following you. We're saying no to the world. No to our sins, whether it's thoughts, words, actions. And Lord, we are saying you are king. You're king of our heart. You are king, but you're king of our hearts right now. And so that's what you need to do is to prepare your heart. Make sure you're not living for other treasures. If you see another treasure, yeah, I am living for peace. I'm living for security, Lord. Forgive me. Because even though I thought that could give me security, I know only you can that's how you prepare your heart, right? I'm, I was living for sex and pleasure. Lust. That can't make me happy. Only you can make me happy. Forgive me. I want you to be the center of my life. I want you to be Lord of my life. Let's bow our heads. Prepare your hearts and ushers come forward. And as we close in worship. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where's your treasure? You know, you might be asking right now, uh, are you saying I shouldn't have any, other tre- any treasures in my heart? No, you will have a treasure. You will have treasures. It's, it's where you find it, the fulfillment of it. I mean, are you saying that I shouldn't have peace? No, you can't find peace in this world. You can't find peace with your relationships. You can't find, find peace with wealth. Ultimate peace is what? Found in what? The Prince of Peace. You mean, I'm not supposed to be looking for security? Not in that stuff. 
But we were chosen before what? The foundation of the world. Our glorification is so sure that in Romans 8, he talks of it as though it already happened in the future tense, though it hasn't. You mean I, I shouldn't feel, want to feel loved? He loved us, what, before we loved, right? He loved us first. We are loved. So, yes, we have these treasures. The question is, are you seeking to find them with an idol, something else that is going to allow you to uh, capture that treasure for yourself? Or do you say, you know what, I have just celebrated the fact that Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, he has sacrificed himself for me. And all the treasures that I'm looking for, I'm looking for him to give to me. So if I'm looking for intimacy, I look to him. If I'm looking for love, I look to him. If I'm looking for security, I look to him. And Lord, search me. And you know my heart. Reveal to me. Show me what I'm searching after for in something else because those would be the idols. And Lord, bring my heart back so that I find my hope and my security in you and you alone. And as that happens, you know what happens in our hearts? We are able to worship him more and more, right? Because we, all of our hope is found in him. That's what the whole point is. See, this is absolutely critical for your worship. This is absolutely critical for your ability to serve Jesus Christ. Is to say, what are my treasures? And who or what am I looking for to give me those? Is it truly Christ? Father, again, thank you for giving us your spirit that searches our hearts, that convicts us, that exposes ungodliness and wrong motivations and wrong treasures. Thank you for your patience towards us. Thank you that you loved us while we were yet sinners, that you continue to love us. Even in our worst day, you love us consistently. We thank you for that. We pray that you would help us, even this week, this day, to evaluate, to analyze our heart, to see what we're really living for and what we're seeking to get out of the idols that we often serve, that we be granted repentance so that we would walk with you. Thank you, Lord, for the example of Nehemiah. May we walk faithfully before you so that we could glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.